0: Hi there, folks, and welcome to Rocky Watch. I'm Kyle Mullins, a member of the class of 2022 here at Dartmouth, and I'm here with Professor Lynn Mather. Uh, Lynn is currently a professor emeritus at the State University of New York and the University of Buffalo School of Law. She studied and taught law and political science until 2015 there and served as the director of the Baldy School, excuse me, the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy at the University of Buffalo from 2002 to 2008. Before that, she taught government here at Dartmouth from 1972 to 2002, and even served a brief stint as Rocky's acting director. Yesterday, she joined a panel of women who were at the college in the 1970s to share her memories of co-education, which Dartmouth is celebrating the 50th anniversary of this year. She is full of stories about her time at Dartmouth and her career and elsewhere, and we are so honored to have you here to join us uh, at Rocky this week. How are you?
1: Great, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a wonderful opportunity to reflect on many vivid, difficult, and exciting times.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I, the panel yesterday was absolutely fantastic. People can uh, find it on the Rockefeller Center website if they haven't already seen it, they can find a recording of it. Um, I know we're talking about co-education today, but I wanna take a step back and before we get into that, I just wanna ask you about your work and your research. Can you talk a little bit about what you've dedicated your life to studying all these years and uh, how you have uh, gotten to the point you are today.
1: Okay, well thank you. Yes, I uh, am basically an interdisciplinary legal scholar. I was trained in it, got my PhD in political science, but I also um, did anthropology of law for a year at Berkeley, went to an institute for law and social science at Wisconsin and studied sociology and criminal justice in my graduate program, and then in political science, Supreme Court decision-making, trial courts, um, jurisprudence, constitutional law. So my specialty was law and social science, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a brand new interdisciplinary program that allowed that kind of flexibility. And I have continued throughout my career in writing about lawyers, about courts, about legal professionalism, courts and public policy, and then taught that as well. And one of the perks in coming to Dartmouth was that I had a very supportive set of colleagues in the government department who allowed me the freedom and the flexibility to explore my intellectual mm-hmm. interests wherever they took me. So I even remember my first year in a course that in political anthropology, um, cross-listed with anthropology. Oh, um, wow, that's fantastic. So, cause, um, and others, I I taught a course in the administration of criminal justice in the department, a mm-hmm. seminar. Um, I went on and otherwise in, um, so I did lots of teaching on legal issues, and then I also, in my research was studying, um, uh, trial courts and then studying, uh, well, lawyers. Actually, that's been the focus of my, uh, pretty much the whole time, more recently doing some international work and comparative work on studying bar organizations and their impact on public policy. Okay. Um, uh, I, since I stopped teaching at Buffalo, I've actually continued writing and mm-hmm. last year published, a. um, an article I was invited to ref- write an intellectual autobiography. Oh. Um, and fr- what does that look like? Well, it had to be framed around a book that influenced me, and it was Ooh. a challenge to figure out what to write because I looked at all the 20 or so very brilliant scholars who had taken done this before, and they had all chosen people like Karl Marx, Durkheim, Habermas, Uh, David Truman that just major figures and I didn't know who to do sure so I ended up choosing someone who wrote uh, a book in the history of physics Thomas Kuhn the structure of scientific revolutions and um, that I what which was a very very important book through the 70s Um, uh, and I Kind of thought about the way in which the ideas of a paradigm in social science had uh, affected me, and so I tried to weave what the different pieces of research I did around Kuhn's book. Uh, it was one of the hardest things I've ever written.
0: <laughs> that <laughs> so, sounds absolutely fascinating, and and really fits into the interdisciplinary <laughs> stuff that you've been, you were just talking about, the, exactly. the sort of connections between fields. That's, exactly, that's and really, and a really
1: main point of his book and. That I tried to make in my article was that uh, fields are actually communities of people, and they're communities of scholars who mm-hmm. define their own language, their own values, their own framework, their way of seeing the world. Um, and in one of my books um, about divorce lawyers, I used the same concept of communities of practice to see mm-hmm. how divorce lawyers. Look at the world differently than other kinds of lawyers, um, and so I did some writing about that, and went on to write how some empirical studies of ethics in different legal fields, mm-hmm. um, l- looking at how each one has its own set of problems, its set of issues, their set of back- common background, um, and so forth. So I've enjoyed I've, I've enjoyed my career enormously, and I'm yeah. not stopping. I have three more papers to give next year.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, you were, you were, I mean, it's it's so clear, you're so excited about it. Just <laughs> just looking at you right now, it's fantastic. Um, you mentioned you had a, a sort of supportive set of colleagues when you were studying here at, uh, at, and working here at Dartmouth. I'm wondering, that that's a nice transition for us to talk about the co-education stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you said at the panel yesterday, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were for a long time the only woman in the department. Um,
1: it wasn't that long; it was a couple of years. Okay. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Um,
0: I'm wondering if there's even in those early days where you were the only woman, or you were one of the only one of one of a few. I'm wondering if there's a um, you know an, an anecdote, a moment, an experience that really jumps out at you that that sort of encapsulates your time as you know a, a pioneer in the government department here at Dartmouth. And that could be good or bad. I'm not, you know. Ah,
1: boy, it's hard to think of any one, um, one event or issue. Uh, if you want to talk more generally, there were so about many. About yeah. Yes, I mean there were, um, there were the ways in which, uh, I had tried to, um, uh, t- uh, I tried to fit in as much as possible, but one of the problems I faced my first few years uh, was that I had not finished my PhD dissertation. Mm, okay. uh, I completely underestimated what it would take to write a dissertation. Um, and So when I told what, after my job interview, well, I've, I've got the argument figured out, I've gathered all my data, all I have to do is write it up. <laughs> well. It took me three years, and it was over 400 pages. And it's never that easy. <laughs> and somehow I was trying to fit that into everything, and so a lot of my um, my challenges those first few years centered on how to finish a dissertation while at the same time um, teaching five different preparations the first year, wow. and I had never had teaching experience in graduate school, unlike. Most people um, who had done a TA or something. I had a research mm-hmm. assistantship, so I didn't do any teaching. I had one year of teaching at Grinnell College in the Midwest, um, yep. which helped enormously. But then I had to t- was teaching different courses here than I had there, um, so it was still a lot. And one of my courses was spring term, the first year I came, that was in um, uh, Boston, running the Dartmouth-MIT Urban Studies Program, mm-hmm. which involved commuting weekly to Boston. Um, oh, my gosh. And also teaching a seminar here in Hanover at the oh, same wow. time. So one day a week I would be down there, and then the other two days I'm teaching here, and then somehow trying to finish a dissertation. So you were slammed. I was slammed. Oh, God. And the next year the same thing happened, but I was also that spring uh, in my third trimester of pregnancy oh my gosh so yeah so there was a lot um the it was it was pretty hard getting all that done um, I can only and imagine my husband had been teaching at the same time um here in the uh, at the college um his job didn't work out as well he was in the education department although he was a trained psychologist and um and that was a department always in disarray and actually it's gone now <laughs>
0: yeah yeah they, they got rid of it uh, like last year I think yeah. or two years ago um,
1: but you know there were uh, I, I just was trying to do my best to, to kind of keep my job and stay afloat uh, oh my gosh but sometimes you know there were I'd find like why was it that when I was teaching the intro American politics section um, along with my three male colleagues all that there were four sections, each one with 30 students, at nine in the morning in the winter, and my section was over at the history department, at the, across the green. Well, I don't remember the name of the building, but um, I think
0: it, they used to be based over. Yeah, I think yeah, it was, why, yeah, it was
1: it was like Thornton or Reed or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah by uh, Hall. Yeah, and so everybody would park at Silsby and they would walk upstairs, get a cup of coffee, and walk right into their nice warm classroom. <laughs> I would park, and I would walk across the icy green every morning to get there in time for my 9 o'clock class. They were
0: literally icing you
1: out. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. And when, after a couple years of this, I complained to the registrar, you know, why can't I have a classroom in Silsby? Well, we do it by seniority. I said, well, no, actually, because there was a man hired the same year as me, and I'm co-teaching with him, and he always is in Silsby, and I'm not. Right. Um. So that kind of thing, they finally switched that. Or then there was the time I found a piece of paper when I was going through my notes for this uh, that I had kept where the, um, I'd been here four or five years um, and a form came over from Baker Library um, that they sent to every term, please list your reserve readings that we can put on reserve Mm -hmm. for the students. And it was a pre-typed in form, government 84, spring term, Prof. Lynn Mather, um, and then it's a form to fill out. Somebody on the form had crossed out the word prof and put miss. No way. And so uh, I I, I kept this because I wrote on the bottom of it when I sent it back to the Baker Library. I said, what the hell is this about? Um, There is no Miss Mather teaching in the government department kindly send me a new form. That is that is truly incredible. I mean, just the pettiness of that. Like, that
0: exactly. Is, that is so wild exactly. to me. Oh my God.
1: I was thinking about that at the panel last night with some of the things that um, Martha was describing that the students were going through. And these kinds of things, you know, the concept of microaggressions mm-hmm. um, that we have now, there was no language for it then. Mm-hmm. But these were just... The continual little things that reminded you that um, you were lucky as a woman to be there Um, and then you saw colleagues who you know who didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one very outspoken um, sociologist uh, who was a great friend and supporter um, of me uh, who didn't get tenure, Um, but I remember she had um, lobbied to turn the first, there was a room in outside of the, the women's bathroom in the first floor of Silsby that had a broom closet. And she was n- nursing an infant or something. She had been there the year before. And she uh, said, we need some space. Um, and uh-huh. so they turned it into a little, a, a kind of a mini, turned the closet into a little mini lounge. Oh, my and gosh. That was fantastic because yeah. when I had my two kids, I was able to take advantage of that um, oh, some wow. of the time.
0: That is that is truly remarkable. And yeah, I mean the the the, the microaggression is is such a good way of of, of putting that. But I mean, also, like, you know, putting your class all the way across campus feels like a macro aggression. like that is that is that seems like a very deliberate you know large decision that's being made <laughs> that's that's that is so wild. I'm wondering if you can talk a little about the climate on campus around the time of the trustees' decision to go co-ed within the undergraduate student body. Um, do you remember? Do you, do you have something that jumps out in your mind either before the decision, do people know it was gonna happen or right after the decision and there was a reaction to some kind, something mm-hmm. that jumps out to you? Yeah,
1: um, I can't say anything about the before time because I was in Southern California still in graduate school. So that gotcha. was 1971 okay. when the decision was made. Right, right, right. Um, not only that, I knew nothing about Dartmouth College. When I had um, invited here to interview uh, no, actually. So I should. Sorry, because I had that one year that I was in Grinnell. Um, uh, that, but I basically I I was a Californian and I didn't know anything about schools in the rest of the country. Sure. When I went to Grinnell, I told people, "Oh, I've taken a job back east. I'm going back east." And then I, they'd say, you know, a New Yorker would say, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to Iowa." You mean again that way that <laughs> anything east of the Rockies. Um, it was considered East to me. Yeah. Um, and so I'd never been to New England before when I interviewed here um, in March of 71. So that's the time period that they were making this decision to go co-ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, 72, sorry. Because um, mm-hmm. the students were going to come in 72. Um, uh, I, I didn't know, I really had hardly ever heard of Dartmouth. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. know what yeah. the Ivy League was. I didn't know anything about that I just thought that any school with Ivy on it had wasn't part of the Ivy League and I can still remember the dinner the first night in the Hanover Inn with six men and they're talking about something in the Ivy League in in sports and I said so naively and stupidly um, oh does the Ivy League have something to do with sports uh, oh, and no. they looked at me like what are we gonna <laughs> do with her <laughs> But as it happened, when I um, uh, interviewed, it was uh, uh, because I didn't know anything about the tradition or the history of the school um, and how elite and how important and historic it was. I was not intimidated a whit. I just said (laughs) whatever I felt like. And as it turned out, I was the eighth woman that they interviewed for this job. Nobody was good enough. They were calling all the other women who might be in graduate school at um, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, like they always did, and they weren't good enough, quote-unquote. They um,
0: found a California girl that, or a California
1: woman. Who... There was a man who had just been hired the year before who was from Berkeley. He called to Berkeley and said, um, uh, do you know anybody? Well, the, his mentor at Berkeley had known me because when I was up um, uh, studying in anthropology, I was also went over to political science sometimes gotcha. after I had done my uh, dissertation. And um, so this that uh, colleague had recommended me. And so that's when I came. And then I learned about it. Now, at the time, I had no idea about the hostility. I just saw a really welcoming department um, of men who were eager to. I could have conversations with Mm -hmm. i had five other job offers that spring um all of whom all these i envy you (laughs) well it it was a time of hiring women there were no women anywhere so Mm -hmm. like can we find one it was kind of weird but then once they got one quote unquote to come and interview they didn't know what to do with it i was at one very top research university where nobody could speak they didn't know what to say to me they would ask questions about what my husband was doing and what would he plan to do if i took this job oh my god and they didn't they couldn't engage with my research uh it was and until and then the i remember that that interview the last hour of the interview i got 15 minutes each with junior faculty and those guys were great and they like I could talk, you know, they were modern political scientists, not old Um, (laughs) fuddy-duddies. And so, um, uh, but at Dartmouth, it was different. This was the only, I really judged my job offers, not by how good the school was, but what the department was like. Um, And I know with this other university, I never would have gotten tenure there because I would have been so appalled and just, you know, I didn't want to be ignored. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be able to discuss books, ideas, research. Um, and that's what um, the government department gave me. When I came, however, I discovered the whole other side of things, the hostility, the um, uh, the, the challenge of going co-ed. Um, this is on I the undergraduate seen, side. On the undergraduate yeah. side. And I saw it on the faculty side, the right. challenge even for faculty. Um, you know, what are we going to do? Well, I mean there weren't women's bathrooms and there weren't women's. There was, you know, just so much um, that was um, uh, taken for granted by men that was not just available to women. I mean it took a long time uh, before some of those changes were were made. Uh-huh. Um, and I think initially it was kind of an exciting opportunity in the 70s, although there was for both students and faculty, um, some horrendous challenges, Mm -hmm. but if you could make it, 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 there was some, there was great opportunity here, Mm uh, if, but then one by one, I saw women not making it, that is, they just couldn't handle what their departments were dishing out to them, or the kinds of, um, challenges in terms of, um, uh, in terms of family question, I mean, there was... Um, can only imagine. Yeah, someone after the panel last night asked me about now that I'd mentioned child care and how did I handle that because I had two small children while I was untenured. Um, my husband stayed home and took care of them for part of the time, but we also needed some part-time babysit, you know, part-time mm. child care. And the first year my daughter was born in 74, she had four different babysitters that year. because. Wow. It was just there was there was no such thing as a childcare center for. In, finally, mm-hmm. the Norwich daycare center opened, but your child had to be potty trained before you could go. So that's like two years old, two and a half. Right, and, right. And uh, what do you do? But for those first
0: two two and a half years, yeah. Exactly. What
1: do you do? And so that uh, that was hard, um, and I think so. You know, really addressing that was difficult. And I remember being on a panel sometime in the 70s about why. How and why Dartmouth should do more to help childcare for its faculty and for its staff, and for the med school and for the hospital employees. I uh-huh, mean, there's uh-huh. a there was a huge need, um, and I want, I tried to reach out to some other women I knew who were struggling to be on this panel, and they said. Ha- got to take care of the kids. I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't have a babysitter to do an evening panel. They couldn't serve on the panel
0: like where they could advocate for childcare because they had to do childcare.
1: Exactly. Oh my exactly. gosh. I remember that a good friend in the history department said that exact thing to me. Um, and, uh, oh, you're kidding I, me. You no. Know. And, um, but finally, um, they did come around and, and actually I was, um, happy both that a change in administration, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody finally said, you know, this really is a priority. Mm -hmm. Um, And secondly, the affirmative action officer who was very strong advocated for this. And there was a way in which you could read the affirmative action um, executive order as requiring institutions to facilitate childcare for women employees Mm -hmm. in order to retain women on the staff. Um, and that was now. It wasn't clear. The language wasn't clear. It's not the, of what they had to do. But it was some. It was an issue they ha- that the institution had to um, address. And we had a couple of really strong um, uh, women who advocated with the administration to say, "This has got to be done." And they finally built uh, the Dartmouth Childcare Center. Um, gotcha. You know. And okay. the, before that, they actually they hired. Uh, um, uh, a coordinator who could help people who needed childcare find. I remember there was a list of you know private babysitters, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And but even this is when before um, uh, Norwich daycare, or actually at the same time Norwich daycare was being built. And then there was another daycare center built in that was in a basement of a church in town. I can't remember where it was.
0: Gotcha. So, anyway, so. Wow, that is that is truly remarkable. Um, I want to. We, we are running short on time, so I want to ask you. I want to ask you one more. I'll give you the choice of questions, and you can go one way, what, what, whichever direction you want. Okay. Um, either uh, advice for women hoping to go into any of the fields that you have been either in or tangential to—academia, law, government. Um, you know, if there's something that jumps mm-hmm. to mind, there. My, my girlfriend is going into law, so uh, you know, I, I will pass on. If you choose law, I will pass on that advice to her. And, um, or if you have any sort of advice for, uh, Dartmouth's next president, uh, uh, Sian Bylock, um, I want to make sure I pronounce that correctly. I, it, it, um, I, you know, finally, Dartmouth will have a woman president, uh, starting in July of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so whichever direction you want to take that, you're your call. Okay.
1: Well, I think I'll, uh, uh, say, I'm going to address a little bit of each, the, um, in classic the, professor fashion. <laughs> yes. Um, the for the second question, um, I think my biggest question would be: Is this is the social system of the Greek system still is oppressive and difficult? It is if it if it's been and if so, try to figure out how to change that. Um, mm-hmm. And that was discussed last night in a very productive way, I thought, and and really affected me because the one thing I thought throughout the 70s is as brilliant as John Kemeny was in creating the ideas and the structure and everything to make co-education happen, mm-hmm. as as an intellectual matter, as an educational matter, as programmatic matter, what he did not devote attention to was the social s- space of Dartmouth. Absolutely. And that continued, and I saw that for decades and decades that um, it women just didn't have the same opportunities because and they were the structure of the of the social system in a small town um, disadvantaged them so mm-hmm. that was hard um, as for women going into the legal profession in some ways uh, it's a um, it's it could be you could see that is in areas of the legal profession is going into Dartmouth in the 70s that is they are still male bastions mm-hmm. they are still, um, a, they are still framed around um, patterns, practices, and values that were male values. The ability to work 24/7 in white in, in corporate law is something that women don't um, want to do. And I know a lot of the literature on um, uh, uh, the women in the legal profession. I, I mean, I've actually published in this and. Mm-hmm. Um, It's a very stratified profession, depends upon which field you're going to go into. And if you look at where women are located, they are located in the bottom third of the profession, Mm. by and large. When they do get the good jobs at the higher echelons, um, they either dislike them uh, and put up with it, or they dislike it and they get fired. They don't, because they don't bill enough hours. Wow. Um, There's one um, actually former uh, student of mine who used to come back and lecture in my class. Um, she had finally gotten partnership as the first woman in a big Boston law firm. And I remember when she lectured in the class on women in law, uh, and she described to the students how she had this two-year-old boy, Connor. And um, yes, she was able to take off for his birthday. Um, but otherwise, she worked 24-7 pretty oh much. Gosh. She, um, d- this was... Um, the the hours that that are required to put in to become partner uh in a law firm mm-hmm. in a in a corporate law firm are enormous yeah and so that's why women tend not to do it so as long as you're happy in other areas of law and um or are willing to to fight for there are changes being made um uh, but it's a it's a hard one so wow
0: all right well Mr. Mather, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, And thank you all to the listeners of Rocky Watch. Uh, We will see you next time. Uh, Thank you again.
1: Okay. Thank you, Kyle.
0: This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.